Amen. And as you guys have a seat, can we thank them again for leading us in worship? And if I'm not mistaken, Billy Connor walked up here a few moments ago and straight quoted that passage. And that was incredibly impressive. So I sent him a text that said, you slayed it. I don't know if that's cool for you, but that's what happened. So James chapter 4 is where we are. If you are unfamiliar with our church, we're walking through the book of James. That's why I asked you to turn there. And we're going to read verses 13 through 5, verse 6. James four thirteen through 5, verse 6. Come now. You who will say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance." All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not to do it. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look! The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvester has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Merry Christmas. When William Ernest Henley was 16 years old, his left leg was amputated due to tuberculosis. He was told the same thing needed to happen to his right leg. He balked at the idea and he went to Scotland where his leg was saved. And in the infirmary, he wrote the following poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think, thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. British people have a way with words, am I right? It gives you chills to read this. It makes me feel like I could run through a wall or maybe run for a first down. When the right person reads this... It can affect you greatly. It was paraphrased by Winston Churchill during World War II to rally the House of Commons. It was quoted by Nelson Mandela in a South African prison to unify mistreated prisoners. It has been used in pop culture goliaths like Star Trek and One Tree Hill. 
This is an incredibly popular poem. Though it is British, there are few things that sum up what we consider to be the American spirit more than those closing lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And all of it, with all of its power, with all of its drive, with all of the direction that it gives us, it's not true. Think about the numerous things in his life that could have gone wrong that would undo his perceived reality. And for every one of us, as we lean into being the masters of our faith and the captains of our soul, what has to take place to undo that for you? It is a simple pull of the theoretical string. We're not that. That's not who we are. That's why James writes this letter to us about practical living, letting us know what it means to be the people of God, empowered by God for the purposes of God. And he says this phrase in verse 13, and he uses it again in chapter 5, verse 1, come now. Everyone say, come now. That has numerous meanings when you look at it in the original language. It is almost an eye roll at the very idea of us being the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. It is a woe to you. Don't think like that. Uh, As Chris Carter on the NFL says, it is him looking at the people and saying, Come on, man, this isn't going to work. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such a place and such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make profit. The problem is not that he's planning. The problem is that he is making a boastful guarantee. He is deciding that this is going to take place. And whenever we look at the people of God in light of what Scripture teaches us, God has a problem with the boast. Consider what takes place when David stands before Goliath the leader of the Philistines. And David is looked down upon by this giant. And the giant begins to boast after he has boasted beforehand. And he continues and he says this, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine said, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. This masterful boast saying, you are not worth me. You are not worth my time. You are not worth my effort. What I am going to do is guaranteed. And what the author of the book of James, named James, is saying to us is, when we make a boast, we are saying the same thing. We are acting as if we are our own God. The problem is not with the plan. It's with the guarantee Now, before, this is in modern warfare, it's used in this world. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we have to realize this is not God telling us that we should go live la vida loca. That means the crazy life. This is God telling us, literally, it's what it means. This is God telling us not to make plans that don't include Him. Now, because this is 2019, and we are in a church on a Sunday morning, I am under the assumption that most of you truly believe that you include God in all of your plans, that I include God in all of my plans. But if that were the reality of the church, we would not have James warning his church 2,000 years ago, nor would we have God warning our church today that we have the same issue, the same problem. 
James is continuing a thought. He told us about wisdom in chapter 3. And to boast about the next day with no consideration of God is blindness. And the blindness that we turn toward what may take place, and when we begin to make these God-dishonoring guarantees, this is the blindness for which we are to blame. To fully believe the future is whatever you want to make of it, and that hard work and ability will pay off in full. James is telling you that you are a fool. You're saying that your effort and your ability fully lead to whatever desired outcome you, desire, you want. If that is true, you are God. And friends, you ain't. There's a lot at play here when we consider what's going to take place and how that's going to take place and how we will advance in life. Consider this. Where you live matters. Not only does where you live matter, when you live matters. The parents that were given to you by God as a general grace matter. The education afforded to you matters. The opportunities given to you throughout your life, they matter. All of these things stack up. And when we look at our own lives and act as if our control is fully based in us and our own abilities, we are saying that all that God has done on the front side does not matter. To believe everything depends on you is to be completely out of touch with reality. Come now. Roll your eyes. Don't be a fool. Verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. If so if you are still disconnected from what's taking place, I know that most of you are on social media on what's called Facebook because I keep getting the recipes you post. For clarity, as we consider the vaporness of life, how many of you ever looked at a memory on Facebook and teared up as you are a year removed and you see how much your child has grown? You see how much your hair is grayed? You, you see how different things ha are from just one year ago, two years ago, five years ago? Hope is younger than Hope's my wife. She's younger than me, and she regularly lets me know that women live longer than men. So if you're keeping score at home, that means that my bucket is on the verge of being kicked. <laughs> Think about the time that is allotted to various creatures. The average lifespan of an insect is a few days. Thankfully, here in South Brazoria County, that means the, in, the mosquitoes only last for so long, only to be have that void filled by 17 other mosquitoes. The average lifespan of a rat is three years. The average lifespan of a toad is seven years. So when you send your kid to Hogwarts, know that Trevor will last longer than Scabbers. The average lifespan of a lion is 13 years. The average lifespan of a wolf is 14 years. The average lifespan of a horse is 27 years. The camel is 29 years. So if you're considering what to pull the stuff in your yard, think again. The bear is 32 years. The hippo is 40 years. The rhino is 52 years. The elephant is 60 years. The whale is 70 years. The giant tortoise is 150 years the hare is 5 years so the tortoise is forever the hare barely lasts so this is a marathon not a sprint the average lifespan of the American is 79 years the average lifespan of a Canadian is 82 years so let's look at that together and we can see look at it like this let's say the entirety of creation adds up to 1 billion years just for the sake of having a number. 
and one billion galaxies like Hillsong keeps telling us about. In a, in a world where there may be a billion years, you and me are, are on average going to live 80. Life is a vapor. If that doesn't quite resonate with you, think about the cold day. If you don't know what a cold day is, Lake Jackson, they happen in other places. <laughs> but you walk outside and you breathe and you see that air that's there and then it's gone or if you were to go to what we call a beach in South Texas and look at all of the sand that's across the beach and you take think about how interconnected that sand is and you pick up a small chunk of it because it's chunks here and then you spread it around in your fingers that is your life. Everyone realizes the vapored nature of their existence at the end of their lives. And James is saying to those of us who hear from God's word today and those of uh, those who were at the church that James dealt with in Jerusalem, God wants you to realize the vapored nature of your life now. So if you are given, on average, 80 years, what are you doing to make that 80 years matter? If you don't get the average, what are you doing to make today matter? Are you living beyond yourself? Are you choosing to be what you should have never be? Are you living as if everything depends on you and your energy and your effort will make everything, all of your dreams come true, and you get a white picket fence and you get the golden doodle and all of the things that you want... Or are you living for something greater, something more? Verse 15, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or we will do that. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. We'll do them both. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know what is good and not to do it. To know what we should do and not do it is a huge indicator of worldliness. Why? Because failure to do what is not really is not really matter of ignorance, but it is willful disobedience, it is lazy disobedience, and it is a lack of humility. So when we look at those phrases and you consider willful disobedience, lazy disobedience, and the missing aspect of humility, what takes place when we look at the life of Jesus, who seems to be a big deal to James because he's his half-brother and his Savior? If you flip James 4 inside out... We see Jesus and our need for him. One pastor asked these questions as he reads through chapter 4. Who is it who lived a life without boasting or arrogance? Answer for me, church. So there's where the answer was. And we're going to use it for every question that I ask from this point forward. This is how this works. This is a participatory. You can never say that word. And I've been preaching for a long time. Who is the one who made himself of no reputation? Jesus, who is the one who said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I am lowly and gentle in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. Who said that? Now we're cooking with Crisco. Who is it that said, most of all, who preeminently said, If the Lord wills. Who said that in the garden? Jesus. Who is it the supreme example of someone who lost control, who was like a lamb, 
dumb before her shearers, Jesus. So if I'm going to live as if I'm the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul, I'm living unlike Jesus. So we, be, so we read through these verses and we begin to transition into chapter 5 and because so many of us have been reading the Bible for so many years, chapter after chapter, chunk, chunk after chunk, reading through, leaning in and not realizing the spiritual warfare that is there. We read chapter 4, we don't go on to chapter 5 because that's tomorrow's devotional reading, even though we're going to read everything we can about our favorite sports team on Twitter for hours. Verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. We get that same phrase, come now. James rolls his eyes. James is saying, woe to you. James is saying, come on, man. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. So we make this transition, and and on first glance, you don't see what's taking place because... It doesn't seem like this conversation about the wealthy has anything to do with the conversation about us until we realize that the wealthy are us. Who he's talking to in verses 13 through 17 has not changed. And who he's talking to that happens to be listening in this room has not changed because I've shifted to another chapter because there's a big five there. Come now. You rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. Do you, if we're not careful, we'll miss the transition the writer of the book has made. Because he has just pointed out the cause in four through, 13 through 17 and the effect in 5, 1 through 6. If we are people who believe everything depends upon us, work hard enough, do good enough, save enough, lean in enough, if we believe those things, then inevitably we will be what we see in 5, 1 through 6. The wealthy who overlook that what has been given to them was given to them for purpose. Come now, I roll, woe to you. Come on, man. You rich people, weep and wail, well, wail, well, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. Why? Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are eaten by moth. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up... This is not your traditional Christmas message. You have stored up treasure in the last days. James, whenever we read him, is regularly, consistently referencing his half-brother Jesus. And we hear him talking about moth-eaten clothes and rotted wealth and gold and silver corroding. And you read these things and you have to remember the words of Jesus as he tells us in Luke chapter 12 a story, a story that you're probably familiar with if you're unfamiliar with it. It's about barns. So if you live outside of Lake Jackson, you really know what a barn is. 
Then he told them a parable. A rich man land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grains and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, the very night of your life is demanded of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is for the one who stores up treasure and, not, and is not rich towards God. Things waste away. They corrode. Everything is passing away. No matter how much we try to protect it or climate control it or Ziploc bag it. I ate dinner at my grandmother's house regularly, as you can tell, growing up. And every Sunday after church, she would make sure that she had provided this enormous spread of food for us to sit down and, and eat. And my grandmother would, if there were six people coming, she would only put out, so if you count me and then five other people, she would only put out six chairs because she never sat down at the table. She just kind of walked around grandmother style, making sure she kept putting mashed potatoes on your plate. You know, you know the grandmother way, right? I don't need any more food. Here's a half a pound of roast. So imagine it's Sunday after church and your grandmother has made roast and you sit down at the table and she's going to serve you and she puts the roast on the table and it sits there and everyone gets their roast and they begin to devour their roast and their carrots because you should always cook roast with carrots. And as you're eating and eating and eating, that food is still sitting on the table. There's a rule that I've learned that at two hours it should go in the fridge. Like that's the, the limit. But let's say that the grandmother doesn't put the roast in the fridge the way that she's supposed to. She just leaves it there. And as it sits there, you notice something's happening. The longer it sits, the colder it gets because it's losing energy because that's how energy works. The moment you pull it out of the oven, it begins to release energy. The longer it releases energy, it will eventually be unfit to eat. Am I right? Or are you just going to eat it tomorrow? You're going to gamble. Roll the dice, baby. It will eventually be unfit to eat. If it stays there beyond the point that it's unfit to eat, it will start to stink. No matter how good it smelled in the oven, it won't smell good two days later. It will then begin to draw bugs and maggots. All of this stuff, all of this thing that's sitting here, all of the energy that it's giving off, it will eventually waste away and be worth nothing. It will... And what James is saying here is all that we store up and all that we gather and all that we collect and all that we say matters for us. Because it is not ultimate and life is not ultimate and life is not really about what we do or, or how we do Life is about God caring for us and loving us. If we look at this text, what he's pointing out is all of the things that we gather and we say matter, they eventually won't. I just spent eight days in Israel. Shalom. Our elders were kind enough to let me go uh, when I was invited. It's a pretty beautiful and amazing place. And the idea of corrosion is everywhere. They have a city that they have stacked on top of an ancient city. It's 3,000 years old. For those keeping score, here in America, we're less than 300 years old. And no one knows where anything goes because corrosion is happening. You'll be standing somewhere and they, you will ask, was this David's palace? We don't know. It's just rubble. Well, was this where Jesus was buried? We're, we're not sure. We just know he's not there. 
We know when we walk on the Sea of Galilee, like we know that we didn't. I did not. I did not walk. I'm not built for that. Uh, But when we know he walked on the Sea of Galilee, but that was not even the exact same water that he walked on. Everything's passing. Everything's changing. Everything is moving. James is pointing out in this text the idea of that. Everything's corroding. Everything's passing. Everything's moving. Look, he says in verse 4. The pay that you withheld from your workers, and really this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it boils down to how those who God has blessed should live. Look, the pay you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. So God in his providence gave you everything you have. No matter how hard you worked or how much you pulled up your bootstraps, God gave you what you have. But he did not give you what you have ultimately for you. The pay that you withheld from your workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You who have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. James is pointing out for those of us who are going to live like we are ultimate, we are boasting in the wrong things. People who view what they have as a gift from God, who view it as something that God has honored you with, you won't cling to those things. You won't hold tightly to those things. You'll hold loosely to them. You'll view them as assets given to you by God to make much of Him beyond yourself. Meant to make much of God in an eternity that is not going to corrode and fade away. The eternal God, he became human so that humans could know what is eternal. All of our control that we want, all the control that you want, all the power that you want, all the the desire that we have to gather influence and, and importance, he had that. And he willfully let go of it so that I could know him, so that you could know him, so that we could be people of God who see what we have as a gift of God for the purpose of God. You were created as someone who knows Jesus to use your means to make much of Jesus. So I would encourage us this morning as we listen to this text and think about this passage and consider what God teaches us from it to learn to boast in the Lord with what we have because of who has given it, not because we've earned it. Though you work hard, don't stop working hard. But realize that our work is for something bigger, more important, more influential. That's the eternal name of God known to the ends of the earth through the person of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here and you're not a believer, I just want to be clear with you. No matter how hard you work, you'll never earn the favor of God. The favor that you have with God is not from you trying to attain Him, but Him coming down to meet you. So when we ask questions like, who is it who lived a life without any boasting or arrogance? The answer is Jesus. And Jesus says for you to boast in Him.
who gave up his reputation. That's the person of Jesus so that you could know your identity and reputation belongs to him. For those of you this morning who have come and you don't know Christ and you are weary and heavy laden, Jesus offers you rest and that rest comes from him. Jesus lost all control so that our lives could eventually be be held and controlled by him. So if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want you to trust him this morning. So if you're wondering if I'm going to try to convert you, well, that's not really my deal. But yes, I would love for you to place your trust in Jesus today. And we do that by realizing that we don't have power to attain God other than what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, I need you is the prayer that I would encourage you to pray. I need you to save me from my sin. I need the hope that you offer me. Jesus, I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Because I'm not the master of my fate, nor am I the captain of my soul. Life reminds me of that regularly. So Jesus, I want to place my trust in you. One more time, just for the simplicity of it. Jesus, I need you. I cannot control my sin. I can't do anything about it, but I can place my faith in you. So I want to do that. I want the I want to take the life that you offered for my sin in exchange for this sin I can't control. If you prayed that or something like that, I'm going to be in the back corner of the room on your left-hand side. If you've trusted in Christ for the first time this morning, I would love to talk with you about that, to walk through that with you. Secondly, if you're here and you are a believer in Jesus, but you find yourself leaning in to what James addresses here in church in the believer, I pray your heart was convicted and that you would, and I pray for the same for myself. Because I love to run my own life, forgetting that God actually is the one who's in charge of everything. So if you're a believer and you see yourself stacking up treasures that will eventually erode. Ask yourself, God, how would you have me how would you have me to live tomorrow that's different? What decisions would you have me make this afternoon that are more practical than that? Lord, we thank you for this morning. If you as you move among us as your people, as we sing to you and consider you and wrestle with the truths of your word, God, let us see just the cause and the effect of this passage. If we continue down the path of not looking and seeing that everything is a gift from you, we will eventually miss you altogether. Let us not do that. Let us be people who honor you with our lives and with the goods that you've given us. We ask this in Jesus' name.